This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. What's good, fam? It's your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Forum D and ED. And I'm bringing you guys another special episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today, I have something a little different for you guys. I'm targeting everyone in the ED with this episode, particularly our providers, our nurses, and including our pharmacists as well. Today, we're going to talk about regional anesthesia, particularly our ultrasound-guided nerve blocks. And I have a special group of physicians that's going to come in and talk to us about this. Uh, some here and some going to tune in virtually to help us out. But before we get started, go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Hey guys, um, happy to be here. And I don't know if I believe Jimmy when he says, yeah, I got no idea what's going on here. He's been a great resource to have. But I'm Alip Shah, I'm one of the ultrasound uh, trained faculty here at uh, MUSC. And I also help guide the fellowship um, in emergency ultrasound. Uh, and my name is Quinn Cummings. I'm the ultrasound fellow and uh, Dr. Shah's minion here uh, at MUSC. Thanks so much for having us, Jimmy. I'm Cindy Oliva. I'm one of the ultrasound faculty attendings in the emergency department at MUSC. But I did my ultrasound fellowship at VCU in Richmond, Virginia, and I'm happy to say MUSC has a pretty robust program as well, and so we've continued to use this in the emergency department. Hey, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. This is uh, Matthew Moak, uh, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Emergency Medicine and the Director of the Pediatric uh, Emergency Medicine Ultrasound Program uh, here at MUSC. Um, excited to join you guys on the Farm So Hard podcast uh, sorry, I couldn't be there in person with my colleagues, Dr. Shaw and Dr. Cummings. Perfect. So I want to get into like why this topic is important, because I think it's one of the cool things. We, we've had our run with ketamine. We've had our run with um, using things like droperidol. And that's all like drug related. But I think ultrasound guided nerve blocks are going to be pretty cool because it's going to be a developing area for EM physicians, because uh, especially those that are ultrasound trained and pharmacists need to be aware of the pharmacologic needs of the ED and making sure we stock these things accordingly. Uh, can you guys talk about the importance of ultrasound guided ultra, uh, nerve blocks? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're you're absolutely right. I think over the course of time, we've kind of expanded our purview of what medications we use and for what different purposes. And really coming down to it, 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 the most important thing is tailoring it to the patient, trying to use a multimodal approach to meet the needs of the particular patient in front of you instead of just hitting everyone with a you know opiate via iv pain medication administration it's much better to kind of look at this person in front of you with a fracture and can we isolate the area where this patient has pain and try to minimize the systemic effects and that's where i really i think that the uh, area of ultrasound guided regional anesthesia has so much promise i think for me and this may sound selfish but it's really fun to do it's really enjoyable for me so it keeps my satisfaction in the job up but Really, it's, it's all about the patient and the patient that's in front of you and the procedure that needs to be done. And oftentimes this is the most elegant and most efficient way of accomplishing what you need to do. Perfect, guys. So for those that are not very familiar with the technique and just the overall history of ultrasound guided nerve blocks, can you just give us an overview of, you know, what is it and where the data come from? Don't have to go deep into the data, but just give us a general overview of what this particular thing is. Totally. Yeah. So since I've been in training, which is relatively recent, uh, we've been doing a lot of these blocks, um, regional anesthesia, I should say, 
ultrasound guided. But going back further than that, we've been doing this for a long time, really. So initially, we were doing a lot of landmark guided procedures, and we still do in certain cases. But that has sort of transitioned over the course of time. And there was a period where we kind of got away from doing these techniques because they were maybe not super reliable. Maybe you weren't getting a dense anesthesia from it. And a lot of that might be, we think, now related to the technique of doing it landmark guided. So people kind of gotten away from that a bit. And then we see our anesthesia colleagues using incorporating the ultrasound with this for people who are going to the operating room, for example. And that has sort of made its way back to the ER more recently. Perfect. So one of the things that come up quite often in my interactions with other providers is the training that's associated with it. And I'm noticing that some providers that are recently graduated from fellowships, particularly ultrasound, are very keen to do these procedures. And I want to see what is the training, was there any credential, credentialing process and certifications to effectively perform ultrasound guided nerve blocks? So in terms of training, it really is going to be dependent on what you have access to. So for me, having trained residency relatively recently, uh, I was exposed to this kind of early on during that stage. For a lot of folks out there, this is not going to be something that you're familiar with. Uh, maybe the ultrasound is in and of itself kind of a foreign thing that maybe you just use for central access because that's kind of become more of a standard of care. But really the techniques are very similar. It's really just needle guidance with the ultrasound machine. So in terms of the training, you just want to make sure you have a safe introduction to some of these techniques because it does require a certain skill and dexterity. Um, as far as the credentialing and certification is concerned, there's not a clear certification to do this. It's generally included in the certification to do any kind of regional anesthesia. So you can use ultrasound guidance as an adjunct to anything that you would have done landmark guided previously, which kind of falls under the general scope of privileges of EM. But there is going to be some specific uh, credentialing depending on what institution you work at. So you want to make sure that before you go around doing this on patients, that that is um, evaluated and that you know what is in your, your purview for the institution that you work at. In my experience, credentialing in performing regional anesthesia is based off of how many of these procedures you have done in the past and your competency level. The credentialing and training for this goes along with other ultrasound-based skill sets. Uh, generally speaking, procedural training in ultrasound uh, you know, it's a lot of hands-on, a lot of non-patient sort of sim. Uh, you know, the key with ultrasound guided procedures is while they're each procedure, be it nerve blocks, vascular access, uh, are different. They're all in the end kind of the same general concept. There's a target that you got to get a needle to. And we've got both in-plane and out-of-plane approaches to that. And once you know what your target is and once you've got good needle control, it's a matter of knowing the indication from a nerve block perspective, knowing the innervation of what you need to block to accomplish the uh, region of anesthesia that you need uh, and knowing the bad stuff in the area that you need to make sure you don't hit. Um, and once you sort of have those general sets of things in mind, one nerve block is not all that much different from another. Uh, just keeping in mind, again, that innervation and the bad things around. Uh, from a general ultrasound procedural side, we typically think of about five supervised uh, procedures to be competent, um, which obviously is a very loose term, um, but that's a number we tend to target for a lot of different ultrasound modalities um, when we're talking point of care training. Perfect. And one of the things that I asked, you, you kind of mentioned it before, but um, your residency or fellowship is going to be the people who's probably providing this training, or there, there may be some type of really cool conference you can go to that can teach this as well. 
So I wanted to transition now into the question that most people have. And when it comes to nerve blocks, and I, I really want to specify the ultrasound guided nerve blocks, what does the, what is the overview of what the data says as how safe these things are to, to do? And if there is, what's the efficacy compared to the standard of care without using this ultrasound guided uh, nerve block? So first things first, safety, because that's the, that's the most important thing. So I think the data shows in general uh, that these blocks are safe to perform. Um, there is mostly a theoretic risk that's associated with it, and this is derived largely from a combination of ED and anesthesia literature. So it's a little bit heterogeneous, but you have to take that with a grain of salt. So largely the biggest risk factors are going to be kind of local injury to the area where you're, where you're putting a needle, um, and then there's going to be the systemic effects from the anesthetic toxicity as well. So whenever you're doing this, you want to make sure that you review all the indications, contraindications, as just as you would do with any other kind of procedure. From a safety and efficacy perspective, I can say confidently that regional anesthesia is both safe and effective. I think it's important to consent your patient to the procedure, make sure that you review the indications and contraindications, talk about risks such as bleeding, the risk of possible infection and damage to surrounding structures, but also to discuss the benefits of the procedure. So better pain control, less hemodynamic effects, um, since we're avoiding excessive narcotic or sedative medications. And I think this is really important in populations where using excess narcotics or sedative medications could be dangerous. So for the elderly, patients with multiple comorbidities or underlying pulmonary pathology, I think regional anesthesia is a really great tool. The literature is pretty overwhelmingly in favor of the use of ultrasound. There are a number of uh, meta-analyses, Cochrane reviews that demonstrate improved block success, decreased procedural time, faster onset, longer duration, decreased anesthetic volumes, and decreased complications when you use ultrasound relative to the old school uh, landmark techniques. And some of those reviews are um, like global, both adult and ped, and some of them are specifically pediatric. Um, a lot of that data, again, comes from the regional anesthesia world where they do a larger uh, chunk of these. Uh, but I think it carries over well into the emergency medicine practice of things as well. Yeah, Jimmy. And I think the most important thing is to, and just like with all other procedures in emergency medicine, is to hope for the best but prepare for the worst. So even in the simplest of blocks, I'll always have the patient on pulse oximetry, on the cardiac monitor, knowing where the intralipid is. And obviously, probably just as importantly, have talked to my ED pharmacist beforehand and planned out a strategy for what to do and what to do if things go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You want to make sure you have an action plan in place to be able to deal with adverse events quickly. I mean, it's extremely unlikely, just like you said, it's really case reportable, essentially, in the literature to have these events happen. But to try and avoid it, you know, we do things like try to avoid intervascular injection and things like that, where if you don't have the appropriate technique or the appropriate understanding of how to perform the procedure, certainly you could have a higher incidence of these adverse effects. So you want to make sure that you're uh, comfortable looking out for these things. So I think the key thing is just to summarize what we talked about so far is to get the training that you need within residency and fellowship training. And if you don't have that, there's maybe workshops you can go to to obtain this training, but it doesn't just end there. You have to have your continued education to make sure you perfect this craft along with other things that you're very comfortable doing, but just making sure you're doing that. And as for safety, it seems to be a very safe procedure to do. Granted, you have the right protocols in place. So pharmacist that's listening. 
one thing that you can do and your admin will love you for have these lipids in the AccuDose, the OmniCell, whatever your automated dispense cabinet is going to be. Have that there. Also, create your power plan. Uh, get your residents involved and help them understand the process of making something like this a rare procedure that can, that can occur, a rare adverse effect that can occur. Make sure you have a game plan across the board and making sure there's kind of a timeout for these type of procedures and saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is our backup plan and where are these things located? Also, pharmacist, actually go to your OmniCell, go to your AccuDose, look inside to make sure you have it. Make sure you have the filter needles that you need. Make sure that your pump is set up to administer lipids in the manner that we that we need it to go. So I, I will get more into that in a later uh, episode, just talking about last in general, but just for the sake of this one, pharmacists, talk with your physician staff, meet with your administration, and make sure a protocol and the meds are needed um, that are needed are there for you to use. All right, guys. So we talk generally about all of this. So can you walk me through the most common uh, nerve blocks that you're doing in the ED and really go down with what you're using and why you're using those local anesthetic agents? So probably the most common blocks that I find myself using um, are going to be for procedures uh, for sure. So um, hand lacerations, um, foot lacerations. We're doing a lot of uh, hand blocks with, uh, and that's all three nerves. So, uh, median, radial, and ulnar, uh, ultrasound guided blocks, um, as well as posterior tibial. Uh, we're over here in a beach town where we see a lot of, uh, patients that, uh, run barefoot around, uh, the beaches and we'll get seashells and, um, oyster shells and whatnot, um, lodged in their sole. And obviously directly injecting local anesthetic would be pretty painful. Um, and being able to go away from those sites uh, where there's going to be a lot of hesitation and anxiety from the patient that itself needs to be treated, whereas you can do a little topical anesthetic, inject a little bit of local, and then do an ultrasound guided block, and it's relatively painless for the patient. It's just it's elegant, and the patient satisfaction is outstanding. So those are probably the most common ones that we do. Um, I've historically done, um, had a lot of patients that are morbidly obese, really old, that just would not be best suited with a traditional approach to, say, for example, reduction of a shoulder that fails non-invasive maneuvers like the Cunningham technique or other, you know, non-invasive techniques that will ultimately need to be sedated. But it's more elegant and safer for the patient and quicker rather than getting a whole sedation set up to do an ultrasound-guided interscaling block or do an ultrasound-guided intraarticular injection. And being able to do that really is oftentimes what's best for the patient and what's best for the department. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think that you know a lot of times practitioners will get a little bit wound up about seeing what other institutions are doing with regards to ultrasound guided regional anesthesia. And they're like, oh, man, that looks pretty advanced, kind of complicated. But it really doesn't have to be. A lot of people are doing landmark guided wrist blocks. And the efficacy data shows that when, when this is performed landmark guided, uh, it's, you know, efficacious maybe 60 to 80 percent of the time compared to ultrasound guided seems to have a lot higher um, percentage of patients that get adequate analgesia so you're going to be more successful if you do this ultrasound guided something that you might be doing already the other benefit of doing some of these what i would call like kind of simpler or gateway kind of blocks is there's not as there's not as many um 
obstructions to performing it. So there's not going to be like vasculature in the way. There, there's not going to be like in the realm of thoracic blocks, like pleura in the way that is going to make you a little bit nervous if you're not as comfortable with doing ultrasound guided anesthesia. So it's a lot more accessible to people who maybe have less experience. And finally, the most important thing for me is I love doing these blocks because you get to see the end result, right? So you can be going through and, you know, fixing someone's partial finger amputation or fixing a bunch of lacerations on the sole of the foot, which is a really historically painful area for patients to get procedures. And the patient's just sitting there chatting with you and they're in zero pain. So you get to see the effects of that block immediately and patients do great with it compared to something like a femoral block or, you know, rib blocks, things like that, where the patient's not necessarily going to sit in the emergency department for the the duration of that block. So a lot of times patients go upstairs and you don't get to directly see the benefit. So it's a, a lot nicer to have that in front of you when you're starting to do that and get that kind of reassurance that this is actually helping the patient. The most common nerve block that I've been doing is um, the femoral nerve block or fascia iliaca. Um, and this is typically for patients with hip fractures. For me, I um, like to use Ropivacaine due to its length of action. Um, so these are usually patients that are not going to be going for operative repair for the next like 12 to 24 hours. Um, and I've had a lot of success with this block. Um, again, I would say by and large, the largest one we do is the posterior tibial. After that, it's probably median ulnar and radian blocks. I think you can, I like to actually think of blocks moving from like external to more like um, distal to midline. Uh, and so those are our more kind of extremity blocks. They're, you know, high yield, low risk in that there, you know, there's no organ injury. Um, everything is going to be small, small vascular injury. If you have anything, certainly we always think about last that's the lidocaine associated systemic toxicity, uh, in practicality, as you noted in, uh, with the group session, that incidence is incredibly low, uh, and decreased even further with use of ultrasound. We do always have our patients on monitors. So pulse ox and uh, cardiac monitor to be able to have a quick, uh, uh, quick feedback. If we have any rhythm changes. Um, and again, that's super, super rare. And as Dr. Shaw said, it would be reportable. Um, other blocks that we've been looking to do more of. So we've recently done a handful of fascia iliaca blocks uh, to provide pain for some femur fractures. Um, once you start getting into more like core based blocks, uh, I think not only do you have to sort of change the game a little bit on what you're thinking about the block, but you also have to think about what other specialties are involved in your decision to do a block. And for us, historically, a lot of the blocks we talk about are for orthopedic injuries. And historically, our orthopedic colleagues have been um, fairly averse to us doing blocks with concerns that they're going to lose their neurovascular uh, or the ability to do neuro checks on an extremity. Uh it is on my to-do list to revisit that. Um, that is a very uh, center-based stance. There are a couple of pediatric centers, uh, Louisville and Denver amongst them, who have a very robust uh, fascia iliaca block program. Um, per his report, one of our attendings who came from Denver said that his orthopedic colleagues there wouldn't even come to see a fracture until they were blocked because they knew it worked so well and the complications were really so minimal. Um, so they would do it both ultrasound as well as um, like as a fascial two plop, two pop technique. Um, that's something that we're going to hoping to get up and running a little bit more uh, here as well. Uh, similarly, we don't really do too many in the way of like, so I have not personally done here any like brachial plexus blocks for upper extremity injuries 
there are some sites that are doing that. Uh, some of my European colleagues uh, are starting to do that more and more. I've got a colleague in Israel that's doing a fair bit of them and hoping to publish a case series here soon. Uh, there was actually just a paper out of a Turkish group comparing procedural sedation with use of infra infraclavicular block for pediatric forearm fracture reduction. Uh, it was a 60 patient study, 30, went, 30 of which underwent sedation, 30 of which underwent block, um, mean age of about 10 and a half years between, between both groups. And they looked at uh, intra-procedural pain scores, provider satisfaction, and parent satisfaction. And uh, pain scores were lower, parent satisfaction was higher, and provider satisfaction was higher with the block group over the sedation group. Um, and complications were all lower for them as well. Now they used a fentanyl propofol combo for their sedations, which is different than I think uh, certainly our practice, which is very ketamine predominant, uh, but still very encouraging kind of small data, but encouraging uh, early studies that are published. Perfect. So that was a good review of just the different blocks and the different agents. One of the things that come up, and I'm a pharmacist, I like to try to help get the equipment in the room, get the agent in the room, What's some of the equipment and the supplies that you need to have available for you to do this? Because what happens if you get sidetracked, you don't have the agent in front of you. And then I've seen some providers just say, you know what, forget it. Just give them, give them the lot or give them something else because I don't have what I need. Is there any special equipment and things that you guys need to perform these nerve blocks? So it depends on the patient. Um, I'll say that from the pediatric side, um, Say, for example, we're going from the five to nine year old range. Sometimes we will need a little angiolysis um, and a little angiolysis goes a long way as well as some distraction for these kids. So we oftentimes will have the child life specialist come to help distract them, um, put on some uh, topical anesthetic. Since it's going to be unbroken skin, we usually just use LMX, which is 4% liposomal lidocaine. Um, so I'll use that as well as a little skin wheel. So I always try to have a little extra anesthetic set out to the side um, just to prep, especially for uh, for kids. Um, of course, they're always going to be on pulse oximetry and uh, telemetry, so I always have them on the cardiac monitor. Um, other than that, it, uh, it depends on what your emergency department has uh, in stock. Certainly for um, dexterity, it's easiest to use a block needle. Um, so we have... Uh, the uh, Sonoplex 2 block needle, which is a 21 gauge, 100 millimeter uh, echogenic needle that has little notches in it that allows it, you to visualize it uh, more easily um, on the ultrasound. Um, it's not always available, um, depending on uh, where we're working. So, um, but it is easiest for guiding the needle. Um, if I don't have that, oftentimes I'm using a dental aspirating syringe. And uh, depending on how far away the nerve is from the skin surface, I'm either using just a long hypodermic needle or um, an LP needle. And so those are what I usually have, as well as if I'm doing a compartment block large volume, of course, you'll have to have sterile water um, to the sterile saline, sterile water rather, um, to um, give you some volume, um, as well as a big uh, syringe with the lure lock on the end. Yeah, I agree with that. So I think for me, 
number one is if you have access or you should create, if you're thinking about doing this, a checklist. Uh, we know that that's helpful anytime that you're doing a procedure. So try and try and either find a checklist. I know Highland has a great one. Um, or create, develop a checklist in conjunction with your team at whatever institution that you're working at. So you can go through that each time you're going to do one of these blocks. Cause there are several steps involved and you want to make sure you don't miss anything. Um, some things that I've found helpful is having a little handy app on your phone to kind of check and double check your anesthetic doses. Um, and always you want to make sure you look at the bottle, you know, don't just trust the syringe that someone hands you, even if, even if, even though you have great pharmacists in the ED, you want to check and double check for each other. Um, so check the bottle, check the concentration, because a lot of these anesthetics come in different concentrations, plugs that, plug that into your app, find out the patient's weight and make sure that you're only pulling out as much, as much anesthetic as is safe to use. And that way you're not going to go over that limit. Um, one of the other things that I like to do is, um, as soon as you identify that this is a patient that might need a block or might benefit from a block, start kind of talking to the patient about it, um, and start gathering your supplies at that time. So that way, when it times comes time to do it, you have everything kind of set out in front of you and you can just go ahead and, um, do the block. Uh, I initially, when I first started doing these, I would actually literally pull out the intralipid and put it on the desk next to me because, you know, it's not, it's supposed to be in the Pixis, but like we mentioned before, you want to make sure that it actually is physically there. Um, and then be, I, I'm a little bit superstitious at times. So it's always nice to have it right there in front of you. Well, you gotta, to go. you gotta bring an umbrella to prevent it from raining. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so do, do the, do the steps in the order of your checklist, but more, most importantly, do it the same way every time. For regarding equipment that, and supplies that are needed for ultrasound, got a nerve blocks. Uh, like Dr. Sean, Dr. Cummings were saying, we tend to be a pretty uh, conservative group in the way we practice our blocks. So on the PEED side, we do all of them, you know, as sterile as possible. Um, and so I would say they are effectively done sterile. We are sterile gloves. We use a sterile probe cover. We clean our field with chlorpreps. Um, you know, everything that's going into the skin is obviously sterile. Uh, that's probably overkill relative to the way a lot of places practice. And I can say it's overkill relative to the way our regional anesthesia team here at MUSC practices. Um, depending on if they're just doing a simple block, you know, they're doing it clean, but I wouldn't say sterile. Um, from an equipment-wise, we basically have our ultrasound machine. And then for our peripheral blocks, I actually have a bunch of pre-built kits uh, handy in the department to facilitate the speed of this procedure. And instead of having to run around and gather up stray supplies, I keep them in kind of preset bags. Um, each of those kits that I keep has a couple of chlorpreps in it. It's got a skin marker. It's got a sterile probe cover, which in that container has some sterile uh, ultrasound jelly. They all have a 10cc control syringe in them, which is a lot more uh, dexterous for being able to do a little mini aspiration before you do your injection of anesthetic. They've got a 27 gauge, one and a half inch needle, which is what we typically do for our extremity blocks. Uh, they got an 18 gauge needle to draw up from uh, your bottle of local. And then they've got a bottle of 1% lidocaine with epinephrine in them, as well as a consent sheet, which uh, is largely pre-built uh, with you know general indications and contraindications and risks. Uh, as well as kind of a free fill-in space for which block we're doing. And then we do a quality assurance process on all of our blocks where I call all of our blocks back a day later. And so in that kit, I also have that sheet to collect basic information from the family, follow-up info, and then some general information on who did the block, what they did, any notes they had about it. Um, all that's stored in a cupboard. So basically you have to grab that, grab the machine, and you're ready to go. We, from the other big sort of supply side things in which Dr. Cummings and Sean touched on really well is the availability of intralipid in your department. 
Um, this is something that we feel pretty strongly should be fairly immediately available. You know, the definition of immediate can be uh, interpreted as you want. I would consider it to be in the department. Um, I do not usually get interlib it out for my blocks, but it's in the Pixis and I know it's in the Pixis. And there was a period where we did not have it. We transitioned uh, about a year ago from being right across the hall from our adult colleagues to being in a freestanding building. And um, while we were across from the adults, we had it in their Pixis, which was deemed close enough. And then we moved, we didn't have it for a while. And so we recently worked with some of the adult uh, ED pharmacy colleagues, uh, I think yourself, uh, Shara Calhoun, to get that back and available in stock in our Pixis. Um, and some of you guys uh, have currently been working on some educational rollout for our nurses so that they feel comfortable with the admin of that and making sure all of our pumps are matched to be able to provide the intralipid directly. Um, so that's definitely a big, uh, I would say, limiting limiting factor to doing these, I think, in a conscientious and responsible method. Perfect. So I, I don't want to get too in-depth in when, I, when I ask this, but the most common block you've done just from, from some of our audience has never done this. I've been at certain shops where, you know, some providers have never done it. The pharmacists are definitely not, you know, involved as much. Can you just describe like what you're doing, like a step-by-step of the one common block you've done or the most recent block? Like what exactly are you doing? So people can use this and say, oh, this is first step. This is second step. This, this is what I'm looking for. Well, let's say, for example, uh, the median nerve. Um, so if you have a patient that has a laceration to the palm of the hand, the steps really aren't going to be too much different than uh, a landmark guided approach um, in terms of making sure that the procedure is done safely and that there isn't uh, accidental uh, injection of the anesthetic into a place that you don't want it to go, like into the center of a nerve fiber or into a vein or an artery, obviously. Um, so usually I'll start out by sterilizing the skin, identifying the anatomy prior to even inserting the needle identifying proximal and distal uh, to the site that I intend on inserting the needle uh, to make sure that there is no um, interesting anatomical obstruction to doing this, uh, something that might make the procedure unsafe. So I'll always put on color Doppler uh, to make sure that there are no overlying vessels. Um, also, sometimes there will be things that are hiding in there, like foreign bodies that um, you didn't expect uh, to be there. So I've been surprised more than once. So I always try to identify the, the anatomy proximal and distal to where I'll be inserting the needle first. Um, so after inserting uh, the needle, sometimes once I identify the trajectory of my needle and my target, I'll realize that I'm uh, not going at an appropriate angle or that I inserted it at a depth that's uh, not going to get my needle uh, tip where I want it to be. Um, and I don't have a problem withdrawing the needle, adjusting my angle, um, because really you just want to do this in the quickest time possible to uh, minimize the uh, anxiety that's associated with it, uh, especially in the pediatric patients. Um, after that, I'll insert my needle slowly. Always, I usually do this in the long axis for most of my uh, most of my ultrasound guided uh, nerve blocks, just so that I can clearly see uh, the length of the needle. And clearly see where my needle tip is. Um, and then as I'm advancing, just prior to injection, again, withdrawing, aspirating, make sure that I'm not getting uh, blood back um, unless I'm specifically doing like an ultrasound guided hematoma block. Um, but I want to know that I'm not going to be uh, injecting into a vessel um, and then I can go ahead and uh, bathe uh, the needle with some local anesthetic. 
Yeah, that's great. I just wanted to add a couple of things. Um, there's oftentimes a question that comes up with regards to, you know, how sterile does this procedure really need to be? Um, you know, when we're doing subcutaneous injections, obviously that's not really a sterile procedure. It's a clean procedure. You're going to wipe the skin with alcohol and, and things like that. And particular lacerations are not sterile. We know that. But with this, it's more of when you're starting to do this, you want to make sure that you are doing it in the most responsible way possible, uh, especially because sometimes in the ED, you can often come under a lot of criticism from other places that are doing these sorts of procedures more readily. Um, and so you want to make sure that you're doing everything properly. So I would recommend that, especially when you're first starting out, do it essentially full sterile procedure um, with like a ultrasound probe cover sheath and some draping to the area with sterile towels at least um, and sterile ultrasound jelly is key um the data doesn't necessarily support that but it certainly will make your life easier when you're trying to get this through your committees or whoever you want to advocate for um the other thing is when we mentioned block needles that we used earlier one benefit of using those block needles is that it comes with uh, an attachment like an iv extension tubing attachment to the back of it and so what we do oftentimes is a two operator technique and what i mean by that is that one person's holding just the needle at the hub and the other person is holding um, the IV extension tubing with the local anesthetic and the syringe. So that gives you a lot more dexterity to be able to control the needle appropriately to the target because that's really the key here. And when you're holding the back of a syringe, for example, it's a lot more difficult to actually um, direct the needle to exactly where you want to go. So uh, for people who are starting out, I would also recommend trying to find a way to set up that technique. If you don't have the block needles, you can do it with a like a spinal needle, for example, as well. You just hook up a short piece of um, maybe like three to four centimeter of IV tubing and you can hand that to uh, an assistant who will then inject the appropriate um, dose of anesthetic when you ask them to. One other thing that I uh, would mention uh, is that whenever you are, the trajectory that you want to go is actually underneath uh, the nerve. Sometimes there will be some air bubbles that are inside the syringe that you have. And if you inject it superficially to the nerve, sometimes those air bubbles will actually impair your ability to see uh, the the liquid bathing around circumferentially around the nerve. So you want to initially start by going underneath the nerve. So oftentimes I'll have to adjust my trajectory uh, based on that. Additionally, if you have a learner with you, uh, like a resident, for example, what you can do is you can make a little pocket of fluid around the nerve, again, starting below the nerve. Uh, but once you have a little pocket of fluid there, you can withdraw the needle a few centimeters, hand the probe and needle off to your learner so that they have an easier target uh, to get to. And you know you already have some local anesthetic working and it allows the learner uh, to sort of gain some experience in doing the ultrasound guided regional block. So I can walk you through like they did in the most recent block I did was a young seven-year-old boy who had stepped on a sewing needle and had it embedded in his foot. Um, I've had a number of kids that I've used a PT block for that. And so I had a pretty lengthy discussion with the kid's mom about whether or not to sedate him to basically dig this thing out or to, to do a posterior tibial block. Um, and I kind of, as I mentioned, you know, digging things out of the foot when you can't see him superficially is challenging. It's, you know, x-rays will show it, but it's hard to translate that over in real time. You can use ultrasound to find foreign bodies, but needles are tiny little flicks on the ultrasound. So they're hard to hard to find in real time. And they're so small, they don't really create much signal and they're typically in a fairly oblique plane. Um, so after I chatted with mom, we went and decided to go with the PT block. 
I believe we gave him some P over cedrangiolysis. I can't quite uh, remember that definitively. We definitely introduced the family and the young man to our child life specialists who are pretty uh, awesome at providing distraction. They bring out iPads, games, that sort of thing. Um, we uh, positioned him in the, it was his left foot. So we positioned him in left uh, D cube so we could have kind of access to his medial lower leg. Had our child life folks up by his head to distract him, had mom sitting there by him, had an extra body to help kind of control his lower extremities so he didn't go kicking us, kicking the needle into a funny spot. Uh, prepped up his lower extremity is, you know, with, as sterile as possible, uh, identified the posterior tibial nerve right at the medial malleolus with the posterior tibial artery. And the way I like to do is track it up proximally until I get proximal to where the Achilles tendon is and more of the muscle of the lower leg um, that we can come in close to a 90 degree angle with the needle, which really maximizes how well we can see the needle in an in-plane approach. Uh, found the spot we wanted, cleaned it up some more, used freezy spray um, to help uh, give them a little bit of kind of topical numbing. Uh, in practice with a 27 gauge needle, which is what we used, um, I will sometimes do a skin wheel, sometimes not. It's such a small gauge needle that I don't find it makes a bunch of difference. And so that little bit of topical numbing with the spray helps a bit. Um, he was definitely anxious, you know, kind of whimpered and cried a little bit even before we poked him. And His response didn't really change much during the procedure. Um, but he held very still for it. We were able to guide the needle right underneath, uh, his posterior tibial nerve with great needle visualization, put in, I think 60 C's of 1% lidocaine with epinephrine, gave him about 15 minutes, came back, um, repositioned him, um, actually used a C arm, uh, so real time X X ray under fluoro to identify the needle, um, had our child life folks up at his head with an iPad and cleaned his foot and started the procedure. And mom was down at the foot of the bed, kind of watching us. Um, we were sort of mid procedure, had the C arm run and had a needle driver fully embedded in the kid's foot. And he looks up from his iPad and says, will you guys let us, let me know before you get started. Um, and we were fully mid procedure, had cut his foot, had something buried in there. Mom's eyes got real big. She could, it sort of really sunk on her that he had no idea that we had touched his foot whatsoever. Um, we're able to needle, dig the needle out with him, never even knowing that we had entered his foot. Um, and that's been my experience with that block. It works fantastically, covers the bulk of the bottom of the foot and does a great job. I've had older kids kind of trying to kind of peer their head around to see what we were doing uh, in real time and sort of almost like watch uh, the procedure, which, you know, you'd never get them to do otherwise. Um, so it's a pretty fantastic block. Um, he, I think when I called him back, was in numb for probably about two hours before he started getting tingles back. Um, I typically think of Lido without Epi as being about an hour of coverage, Lido with Epi about two hours. Um, but I've had some kids with Lido with Epi tell me that they were probably five or six hours before they had full sensation back. So it's definitely patient-based um, and can vary. Perfect, guys. I, I really want to get into that because I feel that even a lot of my physician listeners, they have a hard time getting the nuances of that. Sometimes the YouTube video doesn't have it. Sometimes they can't watch the YouTube video while they're driving. So I appreciate you guys for going to that. Um, one question that comes up often, and I notice this depending on the specialty that I'm working with. Some people want, you know, lidocaine without epi. Only without epi. Some people want it with epi. Some people say it doesn't matter. Depending on the block that you're performing, do you have a preference to use with epi or without epi? And is one safer than the other? Because I, I hear, you know, the dogma of using epi is bad, you know. But I, when I actually looked this up up in PubMed, I'm just uh, 
absent of the data. So can you guys just talk about whether you use Epi or without Epi? And have you ever had an issue as far as having an adverse event happen because you use Epi in a certain area? Sure. That's a, that's a fantastic question, Jimmy, and one that doesn't really have a clear answer. So I, I appreciate it. Um, knowing that we're kind of operating well outside the data here, the, the fear is that there's a theoretic risk of some neurotoxicity to kind of some of the smaller fibers. If you cause, cause the epi can cause some vasoconstriction and you're directly injecting it very close to the nerve. So the thought is that it can maybe damage some of the nerve fibers. So with that perspective, some people say, you know, for these regional guided anesthetic techniques, you don't necessarily need to use epinephrine because um, it's not like a subcutaneous injection where you want to get that vasoconstriction effect. The converse argument is that it may also help to identify uh, early local anesthetic or intravascular injection um, when you're using epi because patients will have some of those findings that are consistent with having epinephrine in their vasculature. So you may see increase in heart rate or things like that on the telemonitor, which would give you a tip off that there was an inadvertent intravascular injection. So what do I do in my practice? Really, I... I don't know that there's a real benefit or a detriment to using epinephrine. I'll oftentimes just use whatever's convenient to me. So if that in our in our ED we regularly stock lidocaine with and without epi, and then the the remainder of the anesthetics that we have readily available are generally without. So the ropivacaine that we carry and the uh, marcaine or bupivacaine that we carry are generally without epinephrine that's readily accessible. So that's usually what I use, just what's convenient to me. But honestly, I don't have a strong feeling one way or the other. Um, regarding the safety, your sort of concerns about epinephrine or not, like Dr. Shaw was saying, there's some concerns about the vasoconstrictive efforts. Again, in practicality in the pediatric world, kids are generally speaking so vascularly healthy and healthy in general that, you know, the adage of even if you're doing sort of like blind local injection of lida with epi, you know, ears, toes, fingers, nose, penis, most of the plastic surgeons I know use lida with epi in a digital block. Um, so we have the luxury of health, a healthier medium and can get away with, uh, probably a lot broader practice with epi than perhaps the adult side can. We've got some more vascular integrity issues to begin with. Um, one theoretical benefit of epinephrine, um, and this is probably better for a landmark guided approach is that if you accidentally inject intravascularly, that there can be some tachycardia that you see on the cardiac monitor. So it can let you know that you're, potentially in um, a, a vast vascular territory that you're not trying to enter. And so that is a theoretical benefit. I've never seen it. I don't think that I've ever uh, accidentally injected intravascularly, but it is a theoretical benefit. So, Yeah, I don't know. A lot of our patients aren't beta blockers anyway, so I don't know <laughs> that you can rely on it necessarily. Perfect. Well, that's, those are the key things. I'll talk about pharmacology at, at a different time, but... Um, for people who listen to this and say, oh, you're just a pharmacist, you don't know anything, they won't listen to Form So Heart Podcast, what are some other resources that you guys use or that you would recommend for people who want to get more involved to understand ultrasound guided nerve blocks a little better? Some good online resources that I've found, um, some easily digestible ones for uh, people with attention deficit, completely unlike myself, for sure. <laughs> um the Five Minute Sano podcast, uh, which is done by uh, Jacob Avila, uh, has a bunch of quick, obviously five minute videos that really quickly go through indications, contraindications, relevant anatomy, um, and then uh, videos of the block actually being done. Um, other 
other resources that I found have been like the New York School of Regional Anesthesia. So NYSORA is another good one. And then the Highland Ultrasound Group uh, has a bunch of really great um, articles and uh, videos on the regional anesthesia with ultrasound guidance. Yeah, I think the key is you need to do your appropriate preparation before you go about doing these. So I think like things like podcasts and YouTube videos are great uh, when you're trying to supplement your knowledge or especially for like a just in time sort of thing where you're like, mm-hmm. you know, I read about this a while ago or maybe I went to a workshop or a conference, but I just want to kind of remind myself of the indications, contraindications, anatomy, especially. Um, and it's always nice to be able to refer to those things. Some of the more comprehensive things would be like the NYSORA. They do a really nice job. Um, there are some apps that are out there as well. But really, before doing this on a patient, just like anything else, you want to make sure you have the the right basis. So whether that means, you know, finding a colleague that is comfortable doing this sort of stuff at your shop or an adjacent shop, um, potentially going to a conference and doing a workshop, or even just reaching out to some other specialties, whether that be anesthesia um, or someone else like pain pain medicine in, in your institution, and kind of following them around, seeing how they do things. And adding that to your repertoire because you really want to be able to be confident about this before you go about doing it yourself. Perfect. And the last question I have for you guys before we close out, I know that there are sometimes some challenges when it comes to getting some of these agents depending on your institution. What's some things that you would like for all pharmacists, no matter if you're at a small community shop or you're somewhere big and academic like we are here, what's some things, some tips or some some things you would like your pharmacist to know when it comes to these ultrasound-guided nerve blocks and the agents that we're using. I think the biggest ones are to know uh, what which blocks are going to be best suited to use a long-acting agent, which ones are going to be best suited based on the risks and benefits of the procedure to do a short-acting versus a long-acting agent. Um, so like Dr. Shaw mentioned earlier, some of the brachial plexus blocks have a potential um, – uh, adverse effect of causing your diaphragmatic paralysis. So knowing that that block is not going to be uh, a good one to use uh, bupivacaine or ropivacaine for, you're going to want something shorter acting like chloroprocaine uh, or lidocaine, which is usually more uh, readily available. So just knowing which of the agents uh, is going to be appropriate for the block. And then, of course, for the patients as well. So knowing, um, you know, if they have a history of allergy to amide, versus ester type, just just knowing general pharmacology knowledge um, as well as your uh, pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics uh, regarding each of the individual agents uh, in that is going to be used for the patient that's in front of you. Yeah, I think from, from my perspective, I often rely on the pharmacist to know kind of what we have available to us, where it's located, especially like things like intralipid. Yeah. Um, you know, I recommend all the docs who are listening to this, like you got to know the doses and how to give it. But a lot of times that's going to come down on the pharmacist and you're going to have a little bit more knowledge about that as well. So being able to kind of talk to your doctors or talk to your um, providers about, you know, oh, do you want me to have this ready? Or, you know, do you know where this is located and how to give it and the pumps and everything like that that are associated with it is key because it makes everyone feel a lot more comfortable. Um, the other thing that the pharmacist can do that's super helpful is kind of advocate to get these things down in the emergency department. You know, having it upstairs or in a central pharmacy isn't really a lot of use because a lot of these, a lot of times these patients come in in acute pain and you want to give them something relatively quickly or do the procedure relatively quickly. There's going to be a big delay to getting the medication. That's going to drive me to, to say, hey, you know, I want to get this person some pain relief 
sooner rather than later and I may be pushed to give them some, you know, IV opiate or something like that to try and do that. And that's going to take away from my ability to do uh, a procedure. So if it's right there in front of me, I say, yeah, let's go ahead. I have, I have, you know, five, 10 minutes right now. Let me go ahead and do this procedure and get this patient some relief. So having it in front of you is a really, really big benefit. So Dr. Mo, what's your thoughts on this? I think, you know, being able to facilitate increased access to longer acting and short acting agents, certainly, uh, is nice um, and working to establish, you know, even just like quick reference charts for weight-based dosing limitations. I keep um, reference materials in a little cover next to our block kits so we can quickly take a look and remind us, you know, what is the mix per kg or mLs per uh, kg dose based on um, different uh, anesthetic agents so we don't end up going and overdosing kids. Right. I agree. And I think if I could impart one thing onto our ED pharmacists, um, that are going to be listening. It's just know how to fix the problem that I created. <laughs> so knowing where the intralipid is, exactly what the dose is, how to set it up, because I'm just going to be thinking about the procedure that I'm doing and how excited I am about it and not the sort of, oh no moment of, well, that looks like a wide complex tachydysrhythmia and my patient's now unresponsive and I was just about to repair their hand laceration. So if you could just know how to fix the problem that I could create, that's a great starting point. Perfect, guys. And, and I always say from an AD standpoint, or just a pharmacist in general, our job is to take it brain to vein. And it's literally to take what's in the provider's head and make sure you can take it to the IV pump, uh, through the patient's vein and, and rescue the patient. So we're like the the ED's lawyer. We're like the, <laughs> you know, we, we're just the, the, the Robin to you, to you guys, Batman. And I think just having things there, knowing what to do and not panicking, creating a protocol. So if you're not in the ED that day and it's another pharmacist filling in, they can easily as- assess that and making sure it's posted in different places. So that's really what it comes down to. And there's a lot more we can talk about, but I want to limit it for time. And for this being a new variation of what we're doing, we're going to stop it there. But for all of the studies, all the things that you can nerd out on, I'm going to place in the show notes at pharmacyheart.com. Again, uh, follow us on Twitter at, at farmso underscore hard, and we can reach out to us and get more there. Do you guys have your Twitter hand, handles you want to mention? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Alep, A-A-L-A-P underscore M-D on the Twitter. Uh, and I'm Quintensivist, so Q-U-I-N-N-Tensivist. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for having us, Jimmy. Uh, we really appreciate what you do for us downstairs. And, uh, yeah, you definitely take a brain to van. You always <laughs> seem to have everything that I'm about to ask for already ready at the bedside. So um, big shoes to fill for everyone out there. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, Jimmy. Thanks. Yeah, perfect. Well, I'm hoping to do a lot more of this again. The Farm So Heart podcast is an emergency medicine and hospital pharmacy podcast. So we want to make sure we introduce all providers in the ED and give them an avenue to talk to pharmacists. And I want to bring other providers to the Farm So Heart podcast. Um, so definitely check us out on there. And guys, I end it the same way every time. You don't have to work in the ED. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to be a physician. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Yeah. yeah.